the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show this December 2nd. About seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. In the next hour, we're going to hear about the characters of Christmas, the unlikely people who caught up in the story of Jesus, you might not think very deeply about them during this season, but here's an encouragement to do just that as we approach the day of celebration. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. I want to remind you that we are giving away all this week tickets to the Portland Symphony's uh, Gospel Christmas that's coming up on the 17th and 18th. And we've got tickets that we would love to uh, give away in pairs to the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. Also, later this week, we're going to talk with Gary Hemingway, who is the music director for Gospel Christmas. And we can fill in all the important details about this year's very, very popular performance at the Schnitz. So that's coming up uh, later this week. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, the White House announced in a fiery letter on Sunday night that President Trump and his lawyers won't participate in the House Judiciary Committee's first impeachment hearing scheduled for Wednesday. Even accusing the panel's Democratic chairman, Jerry Nadler, of purposefully scheduling the proceedings when the president would be attending the NATO leaders meeting in London. Well, the president is scheduled to be and is now at the uh, meeting um, at NATO's uh, marking their seven anniversary, the third through the fourth. The five-page letter came as the Democratic majority of the House Intelligence Committee is preparing to approve a report on Tuesday that will outline possible charges of bribery or high crimes and misdemeanors, which are not defined in the Constitution. The standard, however, for impeachment. After receiving the report, the Judiciary Committee would prepare actual charges. Uh, the president, or rather the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, can, uh, wrote, this baseless and highly partisan inquiry violates all past historic precedents, basic due process rights, and fundamental fairness, continuing the West Wing's attack on the procedural form of the impeachment proceedings. And uh, the ex-FBI lawyer Lisa Page has broken her silence, saying the president's Well, I won't repeat entirely what she says, but it's forced her to speak out. Honestly, his demeaning fake response was really the straw that broke the camel's back. It it is amazing to me how crude the language has become when you can't repeat language by this attorney, by the president, by members of the House and the Senate and so on. But anyway, that's where we stand today. She went on to say with those um, striking words in an interview published late Sunday, Lisa Page, the ex-FBI lawyer who carried on an extramarital affair with former FBI head of counterintelligence Peter Strzok as the two exchanged anti-Trump text messages, said she was breaking her silence. She was referring to the president's comments about her and Strzok and an October rally. During the event, Trump performed a passionate, dramatic reading of Strzok and Page's August 2016 text messages, including the uh, copious uh, promise to Page that we'll stop Trump from becoming president. Conservative commentators have disputed that Trump was mimicking uh, the sound of their conversation. At the time, Strzok was overseeing the Hillary Clinton email investigation and the probe into the Trump 
campaign. Well, Page struck, uh, spoke rather exclusively to the Daily Beast in a highly sympathetic profile authored by Molly Young Fast, who called Struck hot, H-A-W-T, in a tweet last year. The interview comes before a widely anticipated new report from DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz into possible FBI misconduct and is expected to be released on the 9th of this month. And the U.S. Supreme Court, in its first gun rights case in nearly a decade, will hear arguments and did earlier today from Second Amendment advocates challenging a New York City law that restricts licensed holders to a handful of shooting ranges within the city. Gun rights groups are hoping the high court will extend its landmark ruling from 2008 and 2010 that enshrined the right to have a gun for self-defense at home. The National Rifle Association and its allies have for years tried to get the court to say more about gun rights. The lawsuit in New York began as a challenge to the city's prohibition on carrying a licensed, locked and unloaded handgun outside the city limits, either to a shooting range or a second home. And on this day in history, 1954, the U.S. Senate passes 67 to 22, a resolution condemning Senator Joseph R. McCarthy, Republican from Wisconsin, saying he had acted contrary to senatorial ethics and tended to bring the Senate into dishonor and disrepute. End quote. On this day in history in 1859, militant abolitionist John Brown is hanged for his raid on Harper's Ferry the previous October. On this day in 1927, Ford Motor Company unveils the Model A automobile that replaces its Model T. On 1939, on this date, New York Municipal Airport LaGuardia Field, later LaGuardia Airport, goes into operation as an airliner from Chicago lands at one minute past midnight. On this day in 1942, an artificially created self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction is demonstrated for the first time at the University of Chicago. And in 1957, the shipping port atomic power station in Pennsylvania, the first full-scale commercial nuclear facility in the U.S., begins operation. The reactor would cease operating in 1982. And in 1970, on this same date, the newly created Environmental Protection Agency opens its doors under its first director, William um, D. Rucker's house. In 1982, in the first operation of its kind, doctors at the University of Utah Medical Center implant a permanent artificial heart in the chest of a retired dentist, Dr. Barney Clark, who would live for 112 days with that device. And on this day in 2001, in one of the largest corporate bankruptcies in U.S. history, Enron files for Chapter 11 protection. And finally, on this day in 2015, a couple loyal to Islamic State opened fire at a holiday banquet for public employees at San Bernardino, California, killing 14 people, wounding 21 others before dying in a shootout with police. Well, as I mentioned, the White House announced in a fiery letter Sunday night that President Trump and his lawyers won't participate in the House Judiciary Committee's first impeachment hearing scheduled for Wednesday of this week, even accusing the panel's Democratic leader, the chairman, of purposely scheduling the event while the president is meeting with NATO leaders in London. Well, the five-page letter came as the Democratic majority on the House Intelligence Committee are preparing to approve a report tomorrow that will outline possible charges of bribery or high crimes and mis demeanors, the constitutional standard for impeachment. Well, after receiving the report, the Judiciary Committee would prepare actual charges. This baseless and highly partisan inquiry violates all past historical precedent, basic um, due process rights and fundamental fairness, wrote the White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Uh, continuing the West Wing's attack on the procedural form of its impeachment proceedings. As for the hearing scheduled for December 4th, we cannot fairly be expected to participate in a hearing while the witnesses are yet to be named and while it remains unclear whether the, judici- the Judiciary 
uh, committee will afford the president a fair process through additional hearings, Cipollone said. More importantly, an invitation to an academic discussion with law professors does not begin to provide the president with any semblance of a fair process. Accordingly, under the current circumstances, we do not intend to participate in your Wednesday hearing. He continued, when the Judiciary Committee scheduled a similar hearing during the Clinton impeachment process, it allowed those questioning the witnesses two and a half weeks notice to prepare, and it scheduled the hearing on a date suggested by the president's attorney. Today, by contrast, we have afforded the president no scheduling input, no meaningful information, and so little time to prepare that you have effectively denied the administration a fair opportunity to participate. The attorney's letter made clear that his response applied only to the Wednesday hearing, at least for now. Cipollone demanded more information from Democrats on how they intend to conduct further hearings before the president would decide whether to participate in those hearings amid sagging national support for the Democrats probe. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, later in the second hour of today's program, we'll be giving away a pair of tickets to the uh, Portland Symphony's Gospel Christmas coming up very soon at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. Two-day performances, so good time to get your tickets. Well, House Republicans delivered a point-by-point rebuttal today to Democrats' impeachment efforts, claiming in their own report that the evidence collected in the inquiry to date doesn't support the accusations leveled against the president or rise to the level of removal from office. Uh, The Republicans said in their 123-page report, Time to be Made Public, ahead of the majority Democrats' impeachment report, they wrote, The evidence presented does not prove any of these Democratic allegations, and none of the Democrats' witnesses testified to having evidence of bribery, extortion, or any high crime or misdemeanor, end quote. While the dueling narratives are emerging following two weeks of House Intelligence Committee hearings, where witnesses detailed their own knowledge of efforts, or at least secondhand knowledge, to pressure Ukraine to launch political probes as U.S. aid was withheld over the summer. The committee is set to vote on Democrats' final report on Tuesday, likely to be another party-line moment before transmitting that uh, document to the Judiciary Committee, which holds its first public hearing the following day on Wednesday. House Intelligence Committee Ranking Member Devin Nunez Uh, Oversight Committee Ranking Member Jim Jordan and Foreign Affairs Committee Ranking Member Michael McCall, all Republicans, penned the minority report, which has been reviewed. In it, uh, they broadly defend the president's actions in the face of accusations he withheld military aid and a White House meeting as leverage to pressure Ukraine to launch a probe involving the Bidens. The Democrats' impeachment inquiry, they wrote, is not the organic outgrowth of serious misconduct. It is an orchestrated campaign to upend our political system, the Republicans wrote. They added this impeachment inquiry and the manner in which the Democrats are pursuing it sets a dangerous precedent. Well, at the center of the impeachment inquiry, which began in September, well, it actually began much sooner than that. But this version of it is Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, in which he um, he asked for an investigation into Joe Biden's efforts to oust a prosecutor who had been looking into Ukrainian natural gas firm Uh, Burisma Holdings, where his son Hunter Biden served on the board. That call prompted a whistleblower complaint and, in turn, the impeachment inquiry. The president's request to Zelensky came after millions of U.S. military aid to Ukraine had been frozen, which Democrats and witnesses have claimed shows a quid pro quo arrangement. The president has denied any wrongdoing. Republicans have defended his 
uh, position. And Zelensky has denied that he was under any kind of quid pro quo pressure. Well, in the report, Republicans argue the evidence found throughout the impeachment inquiry does not establish that President Trump pressured Ukraine to investigate the Bidens for the purpose of benefiting him in the 2020 election. Nunez, Jordan and McCall argue that the July 25th call summary released by the White House does not reflect any improper pressure of conditionality to pressure Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden, noting that President Zelensky has publicly and repeatedly said he felt no pressure to investigate the president's political rival. Well, Republicans specifically claim that there was no evidence to support the accusations that the president withheld a meeting with Zelensky to pressure Ukraine to uh, engage in the investigation uh, to benefit his 2020 reelection campaign. They noted that the president extended an invitation to the White House to the president of uh, Uh, Ukraine on three occasions without conditions and that the two eventually met in the U.S. during the Union or rather the United Nations General Assembly in September without any Ukrainian actions to investigate. Uh, Ambassador to the European Union Gordon Sondland, however, described the initial withholding of a Trump meeting as a clear quid pro quo in his testimony last month. He also testified that the linking to the aid was as obvious as two plus two equals four while acknowledging he never heard either condition from Trump himself. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff and fellow Democrats argue the evidence of wrongdoing is overwhelming. The fact that Republicans may be derelict in their duty does not uh, relieve us of our obligation to uphold and defend the Constitution, Schiff tweeted last week. Well, Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler also ripped Trump for not fully cooperating with Congress. Democrats have argued that the aid was only delivered because the administration got caught withholding it. Still, Republicans have repeatedly pointed to the fact that the Ukraine eventually got the aid and a meeting to con- uh, to counter any bribery accusations. Nunez, Jordan and McCall, again, the authors of the letter, wrote that the evidence does not establish that Trump withheld military aid to extract a probe regarding the Bidens, noting that the president has been skeptical about U.S. taxpayer funded foreign assistance and has been clear and consistent in his view that Europe should pay its fair share for regional defense. Although security assistance to Ukraine has paused, or rather was paused in July of 2019, several witnesses testified that U.S. security assistance was not linked to any Ukrainian action of an, on investigation, they wrote, adding that the security assistance was ultimately dispersed to Ukraine in September of 2019 without any Ukrainian action to investigate the president's political rival. Again, tomorrow, the House Intelligence Committee is supposed to uh, draw up what they believe are the charges against the president, which will be uh, more specifically outlined in the Judiciary Committee that will hold its first hearing on Wednesday while the president is out of the country at a NATO conference. And the drama will no doubtedly uh, continue. Meanwhile, Rep- uh, Republican uh, Georgia Representative Doug Collins listed House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff as the top witness he wanted to question as impeachment moves before the Judiciary Committee. Collins discussed uh, whom he would like to question as part of the impeachment hearings when the House Judiciary Committee takes over the proceedings from the Intelligence Committee uh, this week. As ranking member, Collins can request testimony from witnesses, but Chairman Jared Nadler will have final say over who actually testifies. During an interview, um, uh, Collins said his number one request will be that Schiff testify about his knowledge of the whistleblower whose complaint laid the foundation for the House's impeachment investigation. The first and foremost, the first person that needs to testify is Adam Schiff himself. He went on to say Adam Schiff is the author of this report. Adam Schiff has been the author of many things, a lot of them found to be false over the past couple of years, but he is going to be the first uh, witness that should be called. The Intelligence Committee behind closed-door hearings uh, has yet to release 
all of what was found there, but it's going to be another uh, thing to actually get up and have to answer questions about what his staff knew, how he knew, what he knew about the whistleblower report, and so on. The chances, the likelihood that he will actually testify, slim to none, but again, we'll continue to follow this developing story. Meanwhile, President Trump's 2020 re-election campaign will no longer issue credentials to Bloomberg News because of its decision to investigate Trump, but not his political opponents. Campaign manager Brad Parscale announced uh, today, Bloomberg News announced last week that it wouldn't investigate its namesake owner, Michael Bloomberg, while he runs for president or any other Democratic presidential candidate for that matter, but would continue to investigate President Trump. The decision by Bloomberg News to formalize preferential reporting policies is troubling and wrong, Parscale wrote in a statement. Bloomberg News has declared that they won't investigate their boss or his Democratic competitors, many of whom are current holders of high office, but will continue critical reporting on President Trump. Well, Pascal said he is accustomed to unfair reporting practices, but Bloomberg News decision takes it too far because most news organizations don't announce their biases so publicly. Bloomberg launched his 2020 campaign last week with a one minute ad which was posted on social media. Along with the video, Bloomberg posted a written statement on his campaign website in which he laid out why he was the best candidate to defeat President Trump next November. Since they have declared their bias openly, the Trump campaign will no longer credential representatives of Bloomberg News for rallies or other campaign events, Parscale wrote. We will determine whether to engage with individual reporters or answer inquiries from uh, Bloomberg News on a case-by-case basis. This will remain the policy of the Trump campaign until Bloomberg News publicly rescinds its decision. Republican National Committee Chairman Ronna McDaniel said the GOP agrees with that decision. Media outlets should be independent and fair. And this decision proves that Bloomberg News is neither. The at GOP stands with at Team Trump and will no longer credential Bloomberg representatives. The accusation of bias couldn't be further from the truth. That's what... um, Bloomberg editor-in-chief John Micklewaite said, speaking to Fox News, saying the accusation uh, of bias could not be further from the truth. We have covered Donald Trump fairly and in an unbiased way since he became a candidate in 2015 and will continue to do so despite the restrictions imposed by the Trump campaign. I'm not sure how that statement is can be reconciled with earlier statements involving investigating the Trump campaign, but uh, declining to investigate his rivals. But nonetheless, that was the response from Mr. Micklewaite. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break for just a few moments and we'll return to talk about um, Google that has well taken down some 300 plus Trump ads. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Daniel Darling will join us uh, in the next hour. We're going to talk about some of the folks from Christmas whose names and stories you might not focus on during the season, but will enrich your time of celebration and anticipation of the celebration of the birth of Christ. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. We're also going to give away another pair of tickets to the Portland Symphony's Gospel Christmas. That'll be in the 5 o'clock hour as well. Well, 60 Minutes has found over 300-plus video ads for President Trump were taken down, mostly over the summer, for violating company policy. Hmm. Well, how to handle political ads on social media has become a growing concern as the 2020 U.S. presidential election approaches. Facebook has taken most of the heat after refusing to remove an ad for President Trump's re-election featuring false information about his opponent, Joe Biden. And while political ads on social media don't adhere to different rules than political ads on TV, they have come under specific
scientific scrutiny because of their unique ability to disseminate broadly and rapidly information, good, bad, and otherwise, and the platform's inability to properly police them. Compared to TV, online ads can spread lies at an alarming rate, bolstered by a machine uh, learning algorithm that can identify target audiences at enormous speed and scale. Is YouTube doing enough to fight hate speech and conspiracy theories? Another question that's arisen during this season and beyond. Well, in October, responding to a uh, to a groundswell of concern, Twitter announced it would ban political advertising on its platform altogether. Google and its subsidiary, YouTube, do not ban these ads, but the company last month came out with adjustments and clarifications to its policy, including limiting um, micro-targeting of users. Well, in an interview on 60 Minutes, YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki said the controversial Trump-Biden ad doesn't violate their policy. Well, 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl asked uh, the CEO, have you taken down any of President Trump's ads at all? Well, YouTube's CEO responded, there are ads of President Trump that were not approved to run on Google or YouTube. When pressed for an example, she said, well, they're available in our transparency report. In response to concerns raised after the 2016 election cycle, Google and YouTube, like Facebook, keep a searchable archive of political ads that have run on the site. Well, 60 Minutes reviewed the archive to learn more about President Trump's problematic political ads. We found that over 300 video ads were taken down by Google and YouTube, mostly over the summer, for violating company policy. But the archive doesn't detail what policy was violated. Was it copyright violation, a lie or extreme inaccuracy, faulty grammar, bad punctuation? Well, it's not clear. The ads determined to be offending are not available to be screened, so you can't tell. They found very little transparency in the transparency report. Well, Stahl tells YouTube's uh, CEO who... uh, Uh, That, as you know, conservatives think that you discriminate against them. Well, the CEO replied, well, first of all, there are lots of very successful conservative creators on YouTube, our system, our algorithm. Uh, They don't uh, have any concept of understanding what's a Democrat, what's a Republican. They don't have any concept of political bias built into them in any way. Well, that's questionable. And we do hear this criticism from all sides. We also have people uh, who come from more liberal backgrounds who complain about discrimination. And so I think that no matter who you are, what you're trying to enforce our policies in a consistent way for everybody. Well, again, this is a controversial statement that has been contradicted by uh, many. And the algorithms, of course, are developed and designed by people who may have for themselves particular biases that can be built into the algorithms. And some Google employees have come forward saying that that's precisely what's being done. But again, this report wasn't helpful in answering that question or clearing Google. The archive does detail how many days the ad ran on the platform before it was taken down, approximately how much Google was paid and how many impressions it received. Typically, ads ran a few days before being yanked, suggesting they reached the target audience before they were removed. President Trump hit back uh, today after former FBI lawyer Lisa Page went to the Daily Beast to break her silence over the controversy involving her infamous Trump bashing text messages with her ex-special agent uh, Peter Strzok. While a prior Justice Department inspector general's report did not find that Page's political leanings affected her work, they reach a different uh, conclusion regarding Strzok, who has since been terminated. Both had worked on the investigations of Hillary Clinton's private email server and the Trump campaign's possible ties to Russian election interference. And Trump has long cited their texts as evidence that federal officials had it in for him from the start. 
when Lisa Page um, and um, Peter Strzok uh, talked about being crushed and how innocent she was, ask her to read Peter Strzok's insurance policy text to her just in case Hillary loses. Also, why were the uh, the pair two uh, texts, uh, or rather the, the pair's text messages scrubbed after he left Mueller? Uh, where are uh, they, Lisa? He tweeted. Well, the president alluded to her assertion that she found it crushing to see what the FBI had become under the Trump administration, claiming that the agency no longer adheres to its principles of truth and independence. He fired back with a reference to the uh, uh, message uh, from uh, struck to her during the 2016 campaign that mentioned an insurance policy in case he won, proving her point. Page has claimed in the past that the, this merely referred to the Russian investigation, which was already underway. Well, the president concluded uh, his tweet by asking why texts between the pair were scrubbed after the he left Mueller. Uh, the Department of Justice IG investigation confirmed that thousands of text messages between the pair lost after Strzok was removed from the uh, then special counsel Robert Mueller's team, but concluded that this was the result of a faulty message collection system that had plagued the FBI for years and not any foul play. Well, the back and forth continues, and this uh, seems like never-ending drama among political factions and um, insider bureaucrats. Well, in other news that's somewhat refreshing, President Trump on Wednesday signed two bills meant to support human rights and pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong, drawing a furious response from Beijing's foreign ministry. Well, the bills were signed as Hong Kong continues to be gripped by turmoil with widespread discontent over Chinese rule in the special administrative region. Chinese officials had hoped Trump would veto the bill and the president had expressed some concerns about complicating the efforts to work out the trade deal with China's president, Xi Jinping. Look, we have to stand with Hong Kong, Trump said in an interview with Fox and Friends last week, later adding, but I'm also standing with President Xi. He's a friend of mine. He's an incredible guy, end quote, which is an incredible quote, by the way. Well, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act mandates sanctions on Chinese and Hong Kong officials who carry out human rights abuses and requires an annual review of the favorable trade status that Washington grants Hong Kong. The second bill prohibits exports to Hong Kong uh, police of certain non-lethal munitions, including tear gas, pepper spray, rubber bullets, water cannons, stun guns, and tasers. The act reaffirms and amends the United States Hong Kong Policy Act of 1992, specifies United States policy toward Hong Kong, and directs assessment of the political development there, Trump said in a statement. He added certain provisions of the act would interfere with the exercise of the president's constitutional authority to state the foreign policy of the United Nation, of the United States. Rather. My administration will treat each of the provisions of the act consistently with the president's constitutional authorities with respect to foreign relations. Well, the munitions bill was passed unanimously, while Representative Thomas Massey, a Republican from Kentucky, was the sole House member to oppose the human rights bill. Before the Wednesday's signing announcement, the president would only commit to giving the measure a hard look, which apparently he did. Well, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman Zhang Shuang uh, said earlier this month the act undermines both American and Chinese interests in Hong Kong. We urge the U.S. to grasp the situation, stop its wrongdoing before it's too late, prevent this act from becoming law, and immediately stop interfering in Hong Kong affairs and China's internal affairs. Jing said at the time, adding, if the United States continues to make the wrong moves, China will be taking strong countermeasures for sure. Well, on Thursday, a foreign ministry statement described Trump's uh, signing of the bill as a hegemonic act 
repeated heated condemnations of the law and vows that China would take firm countermeasures. The measure also claimed that all the people of Hong Kong and China opposed the move, but did not specify how Beijing would response. Respond rather. Well, China has decided now, announcing today that it will suspend U.S. Navy visits to Hong Kong in retaliation of the president's decision to sign that legislation that supported the city pro-democracy protesters who have taken to the streets since June. Well, Beijing took its first step to make good on its promise to employ countermeasures against the U.S. in light of the uh, bills that it blasted as hegemonic in nature and ignorant of the facts on the ground. The Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which was sponsored by Senators Marco Rubio, or rather Senator Singular, requires the U.S. conducts yearly reviews into Hong Kong's autonomy from Beijing. If uh, ever found um, unsatisfactory, the city's special status for U.S. trading could be tossed. I signed these bills out of respect for President Xi, China and the people of Hong Kong, the president said in a statement. They are being enacted in the hope that leaders and representatives of China and Hong Kong will be able to amicably settle their differences, leading to long term peace and prosperity for all. China also announced today that it sanctioned Human Rights Watch for its support of the violence in the city. Hua Chunying, a ministry spokesperson, told Reuters. So now we know what their response uh, is to the president's signing of that piece of legislation. The Supreme Court uh, returned today for oral arguments on what is shaping up to be a blockbuster term. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, we're going to be giving away a pair of tickets to the Portland Symphony Gospel Christmas. That's coming up the 17th and 18th, and what a concert that will be at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. More uh, details on that in the 5 o'clock hour. Also, I'm going to be um, interviewing the music director, Gary Hemingway, with the Gospel Christmas. That's coming up on Wednesday, so you can learn more about that. Also, we'll talk about the characters of Christmas, the unlikely people caught up in the story of Jesus in the five o'clock hour. Well, the Supreme Court returned today for oral arguments in what's shaping up to be a pretty blockbuster term. During the high court's two-week December sitting, the justices are going to hear arguments in some important cases. I mean, they always do. They're important, but these are significant for other reasons, including one regarding the Second Amendment and Obamacare. The justices already have heard arguments in a case involving the Trump administration's attempt to end the Obama administration's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, and another on whether federal law prohibiting sex discrimination covers claims of discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation. Later in the term, the Supreme Court is going to consider cases involving school choice, abortion, the president's ability to fire the head of an independent agency. The justices might decide to hear a challenge to the House Oversight and Reform Committee's attempt to subpoena the president's tax records. Well, they're going to hear oral arguments and did today in New York's, uh, rather in the New York State uh, Rifle and Pistol Association versus City of New York, its first major case involving the Second Amendment in nearly a decade. In District of Columbia versus Heller, 2008, and McDonald City versus Chicago, 2010, the court ruled that the Second Amendment is not a collective right enjoyed only by state militias, but an individual right that applies to both the federal and um, state government and states. Well, up until now, the court has turned down many opportunities to hear cases raising related issues, such as what standard of review courts should use to judge restrictions on gun rights, what types of firearms, ammunition and magazines uh, states uh, may prohibit 
And uh, whether states can require applications uh, for a concealed carry permit to show a good cause or justifiable need before obtaining the permit. Well, the case to be argued today involved New York City's ban on the transportation of licensed handguns anywhere within the city limits except to gun ranges. The city required residents to obtain a premises license in order to possess a handgun in their home or transport it. Uh, one of seven gun ranges. Well, under these regulations, residents were not permitted to transport a licensed handgun outside the city. Well, not surprisingly, members of the local shooting club challenged those restrictions. They argued that the restrictions failed to level uh, uh, any level of scrutiny under the Constitution, burden the fundamental right to travel, and violate the Constitution's Commerce Clause by controlling economic activity beyond the city's borders. District and appellate courts ruled both in favor of the city. Once the Supreme Court granted review of the case, however, New York City amended the regulations to allow residents with a, uh, a premises license to transport their handguns to another residence within or outside the city and to gun ranges outside the city. Well, now the city argues that the case is moot because the changes gave members of the shooting club everything they sought in the lawsuit. The members disagree, maintaining that the case is not moot because the Supreme Court still could rule that the original transport ban was unconstitutional. Well, such a ruling would prevent the city from changing course in the future. Well, the New York case doesn't uh, present the justices with the opportunity to rule on broader issues that have been Uh, percolating in the lower court since the Heller and McDonald's decisions. But nevertheless, the fact that the justices are going to hear the case is a step in the right direction, hopefully providing lower courts guidance uh, they sorely need. Well, on December 10th, the justices are going to hear three consolidated cases stemming from the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. You might recall that's now known as Obamacare. Well, the cases challenge the federal government's failure to reimburse health insurance providers for losses they incurred by offering insurance co- uh, coverage consistent with the Affordable Care Act to those who previously were uninsured or had pre-existing conditions. The consolidated cases are Maine Community Health Options versus the United States and Moda Health Health Plan, Inc. versus United States and Land of Lincoln Mutual Health versus United States. In passing the Affordable Care Act back in 2010, Congress set up a program that incentivizes insurers to offer coverage to people considered risky from an insurance perspective. Well, the program required insurers to pay a portion of any savings into a it, uh, into uh, it, uh, if their costs costs rather were lower than expected, and the government would reimburse the insurers for a portion of their losses for three years. Uh, its costs were higher than expected. Well, another insurer began offering insurance plans on the new health insurance exchanges under Obamacare. Congress used appropriations riders to effectively defund the program for fiscal year 2015 through 2017. Well, insurers paid roughly $482 million into the program from 2014 to 2016, following the formula Congress had come up with. The government owed insurers about $12 billion. That's with a B. As a result of the dramatically higher costs, 18 of 24 insurers went out of business and several others stopped offering coverage through the insurance exchanges. Well, this led to skyrocketing costs, less competition and fewer coverage options. Several insurers sued the government for damages, arguing that it had breached an implied contract and violated the statute. The lower court ruled that through the appropriations writers, Congress had implied, uh, um, I should say, impliedly, which is a word I'm not altogether familiar with, repealed the Obamacare provision setting up the program and that the statute lacked the language necessary to bind the government in a contract. Well, at the Supreme Court, 
The insurers argue that the government's roughly $12 billion bait and switch will endanger public-private partnerships in the future if the government can induce massive reliance by by private parties and then fail to hold up its end of the bargain, which they did in this case. They also point out that Congress did not repeal the Obamacare provision setting up the program. Instead, it limited the source of funding, which did not eliminate the government's financial obligation. The government maintains that Congress did not create an entitlement that insurers are owed, but simply set up a program that would be budget neutral, entirely funded uh, insurer's payments. Well, the government also contends that a strong presumption exists against treating statutes like contracts since statutes are inherently subject to change. Well, that's not very reassuring if you enter into this sort of implied contract (laughs) through a statute and you um, invest billions of dollars. Well, this is the fifth case stemming from the Affordable Care Act to reach the the Supreme Court. A sixth one may soon be on its way. The handgun and Obama cases, Obamacare cases, I should say, are two of the significant cases the Supreme Court will hear in December. The justices likely will issue their decisions in all of this term's cases by the end of June. Seems like a uh, light year away, but it'll be June before you know it and we'll be pulling out our uh, summer clothes. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll be giving away our first pair of tickets this week to the Oregon Symphony or Portland Symphony's Gospel Christmas Ticket Giveaway. So keep your ears open for your opportunity to win. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Zero Res. And before we start things off, I want to take the opportunity to give away a pair of tickets to the um, Oregon Symphony. I keep alternating between Oregon Symphony, Portland Symphony. You get the idea. Their Gospel Christmas coming to the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. We're giving away tickets for the Friday performance, December the... um, 13th. I'm not sure that date is right. Anyway, 7.30 p.m. Uh, we want to give away a pair of uh, tickets to this great concert. And as I mentioned on Wednesday, we're going to talk with the music director, Gary Hemingway, about Gospel Christmas 2019 to give you a preview of what to expect. But we would love to give away this pair of tickets to caller number four and the number to call 800 845 2162. 800 845 2162. This is a, a, a tremendous uh, concert featuring some of the best gospel musicians in the Portland area, accompanied by by the Oregon Symphony, and this is a great combination. Uh, yeah, combination. Again, the uh, the concert uh, that we're giving tickets away for are on December the thirteenth, seven thirty p.m. Uh, the concert continues with a Friday, Saturday, Sunday performance, but we're giving away the Friday. Uh, if you can't make it then and you'd like to purchase tickets, again, Saturday night and Sunday um, evening, there are also opportunities for the Gospel Christmas concert as well. Uh, Charles Floyd will be conducting. Gary Hemingway is the music director, and it's going to be featuring the Northwest Community Gospel Chorus, which is a compilation of gospel musicians from all across uh, the Portland metro area. So it's going to be a great opportunity. Again, we're giving away those tickets today to caller number four uh, to the gospel sing. So gospel sing to the uh, gospel Christmas. And we'll do that again every day this week. And then a conversation with the music director coming up midweek. So keep that in mind. Well, across the country, attorneys uh, are scrambling to file a new wave of lawsuits alleging sexual abuse by clergy thanks to a rule or rather rules enacted in 15 states that extend or suspend the statute of limitations to allow claims stretching back decades. 
Uh, the Associated Press is reporting that they found the deluge of suits could surpass anything the nation's clergy sexual abuse crisis has seen before, with potentially more than 5,000 new cases and payouts topping $4 billion. Now, it's a financial reckoning uh, playing out in uh, populist Catholic strongholds in New York, California, New Jersey, among the eight states that um, go the furthest with uh, look-back windows that allow sex abuse claims not uh, no matter how old. Never before have so many states acted in nearly unison to lift the restrictions that once shut people out if they didn't bring their claims of sexual sex abuse by a certain age, often their early 20s. Well, that has lawyers fighting for clients with TV ads and billboards asking, were you abused by the church? They are seeking them out. And Catholic diocese, uh, while worrying about the difficulty of defending such old claims, are considering bankruptcy, victim compensation funds, and even tapping uh, valuable real estate to stay afloat. And in some of the cases, uh, because these uh, these uh, cases no longer have an expiration date, the uh, person who's being accused could be long dead who could not defend themselves. And that raises a whole nother set of uh, of uh, potential uh, problems. It's like a whole new beginning for me, says 71 year old Nancy Holling. Uh, Longenecker of San Diego, who plans to take advantage of an upcoming three-year window for which suits in California. Her claim dates back to the 1950s when she says a priest repeatedly raped her in confession booths beginning when she was age seven. The survivors coming forward now have been holding on to this horrific experience all their lives, she said. They bottled up those emotions all of these years because there was no place to take it. And now there is. And again, we're looking at the possibility in the Catholic Church of new abuse uh, suits that could cost the church over four billion dollars. Now, this is not exclusively uh, affecting the Catholic Church, but in the areas where these laws have been passed in New York, California and New Jersey, they are Catholic strongholds. But this would extend in those states to uh, virtually any clergy, uh, whether they're evangelical or Catholic or uh, whatever affiliation they might have. So we'll continue to follow this uh, this story that could stagger the Catholic Church. Meanwhile, Chick-fil-A donated to the Southern Poverty Law Center and other left-wing organizations that promote abortion and LGBTQ rights, issues that run counter to the fast food change image as a Christian conservative business. Well, according to public tax documents first reported um, on Tuesday of last week by Town Hall, Chick-fil-A donated, donated rather $2,500 to the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2017, despite the organization's history of hostility toward conservative causes. Now, interestingly, this is before the announcement just recently that they are shifting their policy. So this predates the announcement that has shaken a lot of people up most recently. The Southern Poverty Law Center is known for its controversial practice of designating conservative or religious organizations across the country as hate groups if those groups oppose left-leaning causes such as abortion on demand, same-sex marriage, or government coercion of faith-based businesses. Not only has Chick-fil-A abandoned donations to Christian groups, including the Salvation Army, it's donated to one of the most extreme anti-Christian groups in America. That's a quote from Tony Perkins of Family Research Council uh, in his prepared statement that was released last Wednesday. Anyone who opposes the Southern Poverty Law Center, including many Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, and traditional conservatives, are slandered and slapped with the extremist label, or even worse, their hate group designation, Perkins points out. Southern Poverty Law Center was linked to domestic terrorism when a gunman who stormed the Family Research Council's Washington headquarters in 2012 admitted that he targeted the organization after seeing uh, the uh, group on SPLC's hate map showing the locations of the group that opposes its agenda. He carried Chick-fil-A sandwiches with him, according to police. A spokesperson for Chick-fil-A 
Inc. told the Daily Signal in an email that the donation to the Southern Poverty Law Center was made by a volunteer member of the Chick-fil-A Foundation Advisory Board. Each volunteer advisor uh, in 2017 was offered the opportunity to recommend a grant recipient, the spokesman said. Other organizations that received grants from Chick-fil-A in 2017, the spokesman said, include Meals on Wheels, the Holocaust Survivor Support Fund, and Emory University's Brain Health Research Unit. Chick-fil-A has come under fire recently from some conservatives for announcing that it's ended multi-year donations to conservative charities criticized by the LGBTQ activists, including the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, leading some to call for a boycott of the restaurant chain. In a letter Tuesday to the CEO, Dan Cathy, nearly 50 conservative leaders, including Heritage Foundation President Kay Cole James, criticized the company for bowing to the pressure of left-wing extremist groups and called on Cathy to rethink the company's approach to charitable giving. Your latest decisions to withdraw charitable giving to the Salvation Army and other Christian charities has betrayed the very people who stood with you, the letter says. You have instead allied yourself with a bully tactic leftist movement that will never be satisfied with your compromises. Now, again, interestingly enough, they've already donated to the Southern Poverty Law Center, but the most loud... um, Voices being raised against Chick-fil-A in 2019 do not cite that as being sufficient, uh, which raises the question, is there anything Chick-fil-A can do other than renounce the Christian faith altogether to satisfy its critics? Uh, Again, uh, nearly 50 conservatives, I believe there are 49 of them, have urged Chick-fil-A to reverse course on pro-family charities. And we will follow that story to see the response uh, that Mr. Kathy, the COO, Offers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear something about the characters of Christmas. These are pretty unlikely people that are caught up in the greatest story ever told, or at least the first half of the greatest story ever told. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, it's that season again with the lights, the gifts, the heartwarming sentiments that make up Christmas. Well, is that all there is? Well, my next guest makes the point that it's easy to become caught up in the flurry of activity during this season, and it starts earlier and earlier, forgetting about who is at the center of it all. How do you recapture our love for the Christmas story, for Jesus himself, and better understand those who played a pivotal role in his birth? Well, Christmas is more than Hallmark movies and trips to Grandma's house, says my next guest, author of The Characters of Christmas. It's a celebration of the birth of the Son of God, the long-promised Messiah. It's important for us not to not get caught up simply in the sentimentality of Christmas without realizing what we're really celebrating. Well, the book, The Characters of Christmas... In it, he takes readers back in time to Christ's birth, and he looks at the unusual group of misfits and societal outcasts and those who are often overlooked in the Christmas story. He brings each one of them to life. He explores their role in the Christmas story and digs deep to reveal truths from their lives that impact believers today. Well, Daniel Darling is a prolific author, a speaker who believes Christmas music should be sung all year round. He currently serves as the vice president for communications for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He is the author of several books. He's also a columnist for Home Life and a regular contributor to In Touch Magazine, Christianity Today, uh, Gospel Coalition. His op-eds have appeared in places you probably frequent, USA Today, CNN, Washington Times, Time Magazine, Huffington Post, and many, many others. He joins us today to talk about his fascinating book that encourages us to look at the characters of Christmas, the unlikely people caught up in the story of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so glad to be on here on the radio with you in Portland. Uh, Great to be with you. Well, thank you and Merry Christmas. (laughs) 
Merry Christmas to you as well. Well, it is easy in our culture, especially, to reduce Christmas to a set of um, sentimentalities and experiences that oftentimes fall short of what we're encouraged to believe Christmas is all about. Um, what what drove you to encourage us to think about and to consider the people surrounding the story of Christmas that might hearken us back to the true meaning of the uh, the season? And it's it's great that we have these familiar rhythms and and the same songs and the same story over and over again because I think God uses it to shape our hearts uh, and draw us toward Himself. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, every year we're we're wanting to. Uh, find new and fresh um, angles at looking at the Christmas story, and I think the Christmas story is like a multifaceted diamond, really, where there's so many there's so many things about the gospel, about the incarnation that that uh, can draw us in. And this year, I wanted to see what would it look like if uh, we looked at these ordinary people whom we we kind of lionized at this point. We uh, they decorate our nativity scenes, uh, our kids dress up like them in our Christmas pageants. But in the first century, at the first Christmas, they were just ordinary people who uh, were swept up in the story of God coming to earth in Jesus. It is so interesting, the cast of characters that God chooses to play a part in this most important story in human history. And as I mentioned, and you certainly emphasize in the book, these are not the cast of characters that Hollywood would necessarily have chosen. They would quickly have overlooked them in favor of uh, the, the rich and beautiful, if you will. And yet, God strategically places these ordinary people around these events, and there's something to be learned from each one of them. You're exactly right. If you and I were writing this story, we would not have chosen the characters that are here. Uh, you think of um, the, the one chosen to be the mother of Jesus, Mary. She's a, a poor peasant Jewish girl. Uh, you think of Joseph, who's just an ordinary carpenter. Um, you think of the shepherd to, to whom the announcement came, that they were, they were just lowly shepherds. Um, we would have had a press conference and a social media campaign and would have announced in, you know, in Rome or at least in Jerusalem where the religious elite were, not in Bethlehem. And we wouldn't have chosen people from the backwater town of Nazareth. And yet this is uh, whom uh, God chose. This tells us something about the kingdom of God that is made up mostly of ordinary people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about some of those characters, beginning with the uh, the two that we are perhaps most familiar with. Uh, Joseph, who was chosen to um, to be the earthly father of the Son of God, um, he's he's hand chosen for a task that I think most of us would shrink back from. What do you think about um, Joseph being chosen for that task, and what do we know about Joseph? What can we learn from him? You know, what we know about Joseph is that he always did the next right thing. Uh, the Bible calls him uh, righteous, and um, you know, I wanted to focus on him in, in the first chapter because I think he's often forgotten in the story. Uh, there's maybe one or two songs written about Joseph. Um, but here we see Joseph right away, even when he finds out that Mary is pregnant, he does the right thing by wanting to put her away privately. This would be the, the, the uh, instead of the more public way that to shame someone who is an unwed mother. And then when the angel comes to him, he obeys and he gets up and he makes Mary his, you know, he, he's not afraid to make Mary his wife. Um, he takes the child to Egypt when the, when the angel visits him and uh, takes Jesus to Egypt and Mary and Jesus to Egypt to, to, uh, for their, for their rescue from Herod. Um, he was willing to father a child that was not his own. And, and think about what he was signing up for. Um, you know, Mary got an angelic visit. Joseph got an angelic visit. But the rest of their family did. And for mm-hmm. all of their lives, there'd be a shame and a stigma attached to them. Uh, and they were willing to bear that shame. Joseph was willing to bear that shame for the one who would later bear his shame. Mm. 
Well, let's talk about Mary. First of all, she's not even a legal adult by our standards today. She is a peasant girl. She probably hasn't traveled much outside of the circles that made up her everyday life. And yet God singles her out. This obscure teenager, he singles her out from among all the women on the earth that could have been chosen, or at least from the nation of Israel, that might have been chosen for that role. What can we learn from Mary, and why did, uh, why did God choose her? You know, I think what we, what we see in Mary is right from her response of, you know, first of all, why did, you know, essentially, why did you choose me? How can these things be? And that's the question we ask today. How can it be that uh, uh, Jesus could be both God and man? It's this wonderful and beautiful mystery. And yet she said yes. She said yes to God. And let's understand what she was saying yes to. Um, later, when she would bring Jesus to the temple for purification, Simeon uh, would prophesy over her and say that a sword will pierce your soul. In other words, Mary was signing up for, for a difficult lifetime of hardship, of shame. Uh, probably there was a stigma surrounding her her whole life. We even see later in the Gospels that many of Jesus' even own family and siblings didn't believe the Messiah uh, narrative. And yet she was willing to do this. Um, she would be, as a mother, she would see her son grow up. She would see him scorned. She would see him uh, reviled. She, he'd be an object of derision. Uh, he'd be unjustly tried. He'd be put on a cross. She's sitting there at the foot of the cross as he's dying and bleeding, and he's mocked as the soldiers take his body off the cross and bury him. And she did all this, and she's willing to obey God because she knew and she believed that this child uh, was the Son of God. And even though uh, she had endured hardship for, for Jesus, Jesus would endure the ultimate hardship for her and paying uh, for her sins. Mm. Let's talk about uh, another two a set of characters that there aren't many Christmas carols about, if there are any at all. And that's Zachariah and Elizabeth. Mary chooses mm-hmm. to go visit her cousin uh, while she is bearing uh, Jesus. And that's such an interesting part of the story of uh, Jesus' incarnation. But, but talk a bit about Zachariah and Elizabeth and why that story is included in this uh, greatest of, of all stories. What's interesting about their story is, you know, uh, the first appearance of, of an angel comes to Zechariah in this Christmas story. So after 400 years of silence, of, of no prophets, no angels, um, uh, coming to a cynical people who had read the prophecies, but they're not really believing him because false messiahs had come, they're under the, the thumb of Roman rule. Here's Zechariah with a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to light, uh, to, to give the incense in the temple. And Gabriel appears to him and says, your prayers have been answered. Your prayers for a son, your prayers for the, for the, also for a Messiah. And what we can learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth, I think, is a couple of things. I think, number one, they were well past childbearing age, and yet uh, God birthed in them a son, John the Baptist, who'd be the final prophet, who would be a forerunner of Jesus. Um, God had to silence Zechariah because of his unbelief. And I think what we learned from them is sometimes God has to put us in a period of silence and waiting Mm. for us to see him work. But we also see this theme of rebirth and recreation that you see throughout the Bible. Abraham and Sarah could not have children. Hannah could not have children. Zechariah and Elizabeth. And yet God birthed something new out of what was dead. And this is something that God wants to do in each of us. He wants to birth uh, this new spiritual birth in each of us. We're talking with Daniel Darling. He's the author of The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And to consider each of them as we contemplate the incarnation of Christ, his birth, and uh, all of those events, the book is published by Moody. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're continuing a conversation with Daniel Darling. He is a prolific writer and speaker. His latest book, The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus, encouraging us to consider the lessons that can be learned from each of these characters that were selected carefully by God to help unfold this drama, the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, we've mentioned in a couple of these stories the appearance of angels. And in the 21st century, there are lots. Uh, there's lots of uh, speculation about who the angels are and and uh, what their role is. But here in Scripture, we see specifically angels that have been dispatched for a singular purpose, and that is to herald the coming of the Messiah. Talk a little bit about what we can learn from the angels in the Christmas story and how significant they are. Well, you really can't tell the Christmas story without the angels, can you? Because, no, you can't. Uh, you see, you see Gabriel there announcing to Zechariah about John the Baptist. You see uh, angels announcing to Mary that she's going to be pregnant with the, the Son of God. You see an angel come uh, multiple times to Joseph. Uh, you see an angel that go into the wise men to warn them. Um, and you just you see angels fill uh, the Bethlehem fields uh, announcing the birth of Jesus. And then all through the narrative of Jesus' life, when he's when he's uh, in the wilderness of temptation, they're nourishing him. When he is about to be crucified, Jesus has to restrain the angels. From defending him, and then there's uh, there's an angel sitting on the on the empty uh, sitting by the empty tomb, announcing that he's risen again, and an angel there at his ascension, and an angel helping to build the early church, and then at the end of the age, we see angels in heaven worshiping Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So angels are not like humans. Uh, angels are not recipients of grace. Uh, angels, you know, God has humans as a special a creature who are made in his image. The gospel is for humans. It's between God and uh, really between God and his image bearers. But angels have a courtside seat to this entire plan of redemption. And I think what we need to do is to listen to the words of Charles Wesley when he says, hark the herald angels sing. In other Mm. words, listen to the message that the angels are saying. Step back and look at it from their perspective of God's marvelous plan from Genesis to Revelation, this wonderful plan, and it should cause us really to worship. Oh, absolutely. Such a beautiful picture when you consider the the appearances of angels in so many significant events. I appreciate your reminding us of that thread that runs throughout human history. Now, again, some of the more obscure characters that make up the uh, the cast of those who are witnesses to or participants in the events of Christmas. Uh, let's start with the uh, with the shepherds, the innkeeper. Uh, these are people we don't know their names. We don't know necessarily how many of them there were. Um, but these are, are not people who are named, but play a significant role in um, observing and responding to the events of Christmas. Well, what's wonderful and interesting about the shepherds, I think there's a few things. I think it's highly uh, symbolic that the announcement of the coming of the Son of God doesn't come in Rome, doesn't come in uh, in Jerusalem where the religious elite are. It comes in a shepherd field to lowly shepherds. Shepherds were not uh, considered uh, high-class society. They were they were had to kind of tend the sheep outside the city. Uh, but it tells us what kind of kingdom that God is establishing, a kingdom uh, of mostly ordinary people. He comes among the lowly. But I also think it's significant because shepherding is a theme of the type of leadership that God mm-hmm. provides throughout Scripture. God calls himself the shepherd of Israel. Uh, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, Israel is rebuked for having leadership that is not that are not good shepherds. Jesus would later call himself the good shepherd. Um, it, it's saying this is the kind of king 
that Jesus is going to be. He's not going to be like Caesar. He's not going to be like Herod. He's going to be a shepherd king who's going to sit on the throne of Israel's original shepherd king. And lastly, I think there's symbolism because the announcement of the final sacrifice for sins comes to those who would tend sheep who would be used for temple sacrifice. The announcement of the one whom John called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world comes to those who are tending the lambs used for the sacrifice. So I don't think it's um, accidental that God chooses shepherds to receive the first announcement of Christmas. Mm. Now let's talk about the innkeeper. The word is not used. We we assume some things about the individual or individuals who are responsible ultimately for housing the uh, the first the holy family. But what can we learn from, and what do we know about the innkeeper, if you will? Well, we don't know much, uh, and scholars debate in terms of what was what was it actually like. Uh, for Mary and Joseph, what, you know, where, did they have to stay in a cave? Was it a more traditional inn like we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Uh, what, did, it, did they have to stay with uh, family in their homes, in their hometown of Bethlehem? We really don't know. But one thing we do know, Luke makes a point of saying that there was no room for him. And so um, the one for whom, the one who created the world, who, who fashioned humans in his image, uh, did not have any room in the world he created. The one uh, who, for whom there was no room, though, is making room for those who put their faith in him. But there had to be somebody to tell Joseph and Mary um, that there's no room. And you can imagine the scene here. This, if there's an innkeeper or proprietor, whoever it was, he's not humming to himself, oh, holy night. Uh, he's just thinking, this is two visitors come by that I don't have room. What am I going to do? Let me scramble to make room for them. Uh, Joseph is not exactly singing Silent Night when he's knocking on the door furiously trying to get a room. Uh, little did the, this, the person here who's an innkeeper or whoever was there that night understand that in this place on this night would be a special night, a holy night, a historic night. The people who, I just imagine the people who had to sleep maybe next to Mary and Joseph or uh, people who had just happened to use, choose this place to rest for the night were witnesses to the uh, historic uh, e- eternal, life-changing evening when the Son of God was born there. Mm. You write about the wise men and the fact that we don't know that there were three, and most likely there were more of them. But I want to take a moment and focus on Herod. He's sort of the, the bad guy in this story, and, and rightly labeled so. But I don't think we think much about him in this story. Talk a bit about Herod and what we can learn from his role in the unfolding of this uh, this story. Well, what's interesting about the way we think about Christmas, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but all of our Christmas stories uh, have, a, have a bad guy, right? Even, you know, think of It's a Wonderful Life, which is one of my favorites. You have Mr. Potter. Uh, if you have, um, you have the Grinch that stole Christmas. Uh, you have, uh, in the Christmas Carol, you have Scrooge. Even in our Hallmark movies that my wife makes me watch, there's always a bad person who is trying to destroy Christmas. And I think that comes from our acknowledgement that we do know that there's a battle between good versus evil. And in the original Christmas, Herod is the bad, original bad guy. He's threatened by the presence of Jesus. So instead of acknowledging Jesus as king, he's threatened and he goes and commits violence against young baby boys. But what he doesn't also realize is that he is just in a long line of antichrist throughout the ages who raise up against God's plan. This was prophesied in Genesis when when God said that the seed of the serpent would nip at the heels of the seed of the woman, but the seed of that woman would one day crush the serpent. And so Herod thought he had power. Everyone in Israel thought Herod had power. 
Everyone was afraid of him. But the real power was that infant baby that fled to Egypt as a refugee who would one day uh, crush the head of the serpent. Mm. Well, let's uh, let's talk about two others who are rarely mentioned when we're talking about um, the Christmas story, Simeon and Anna. It seems almost like a side story, and yet it's significant because they had a long view looking back and considering the promises that had been made. Well, Simeon and Anna kind of appear out of nowhere on the pages of this story. Uh, but what we know about Simeon is that he was someone who, unlike everyone else, it seems, in Israel, had read, really read and understood the prophecies and had really taken them literally when it said, unto us a child must be born. And then he's reading in Micah that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so he's waiting and he's waiting at the temple. People probably think he's crazy. There's that old guy over there. He really believes these prophecies. You know, very similar to today when people uh, say about Christians, oh, they think Jesus is going to come again. That's really great. I don't think it's going to happen. But here he is. He's believing those. And he's asking the Lord to show him which couple and which baby um, is the Messiah. And one day the Spirit whispers to him, this couple here, this baby. And so he goes and he blesses Mary and Joseph and he blesses Jesus. But then he says something interesting. He says, now I can die. In other words, once you've had an encounter with Jesus, you are at peace with your life and at peace with facing your own mortality. Which I think is a lesson and a powerful truth for all of us. He could He could face death because Jesus himself, that baby, would face death on the cross and defeat it. Um, And then we have Anna, who uh, we know even less about, but we know she was a prophetess. We think she was a widow who, uh, in those days, there was no social safety net, so she probably uh, was very poor. She, too, was waiting in the temple and believing those prophecies. Probably they thought she was crazy. Here's this old woman over there. Uh, Bless her heart. You know, she she thinks this is really going to happen, but she believed. And it Both of these, Anna and Simeon, show us that God comes to those who seek him. God comes to those who wait on him. And I think that's a lesson for us. Absolutely. Once again, the book is titled The Characters of Christmas, The Unlikely People Caught Up in the Story of Jesus. And there are 11 chapters. You could uh, study them for the 12 days of Christmas. The book is published by Moody and a great study as we anticipate celebrating the incarnation of Christ. Daniel Darling, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's great to be here on the radio with you in Portland, and I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Thank you. You too. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back for the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, I have to tell you, I enjoyed a time of worship and fellowship with the in-tree singing Christmas tree choir. Now, these are the folks who actually stand in the tree of the uh, Portland Singing Christmas Tree that concluded its final weekend uh, this Sunday afternoon, the 57th season. And we had a time of of worship. Dan Rice and I had the uh, opportunity to lead worship and just spent some great time in fellowship together. And I thought about how wonderful it is that we could be in the basement of the Keller Auditorium and lifting our voices in worship and praise. But I'm also reminded that that's not the case for so many. And this morning, as I read about uh, West African nation of Burkina Faso and what uh, church attenders there have to face, I am reminded how sobering it is to be a follower of Christ and that, as Jesus said, they oppose me, they're going to oppose you. There are persecuted believers whose experience we have a difficult time relating to, but we do have the privilege of praying for them. Well, the headline read, Sunday church attack kills 14 in Burkina Faso. The president of the nation condemned the barbaric attack on Twitter. Well, apparently the uh, the president of the country has confirmed that 14 people were killed in that attack on a Protestant church in the country's east um, uh, region. Going on Twitter, the president uh, who... 
is, whose name is Rock Mark Christian Kobari, said on Sunday that he condemned the barbaric attack in the town. He said several people were also wounded. He offered his deepest condolences to the bereaved families, wished a speedy recovery to the wounded. Islamic extremists there have been active in Burkina Faso since 2015. Jihadists have attacked police stations and churches all across the country's uh, north, but also recently they've struck in the east as well. In November, gunmen generally believed to be Islamic extremists attacked a convoy carrying employees of a mining company in that region, killing at least 37 of them. The U.S. State Department warns against travel in most of that country, stating that terrorists may attack places of worship and other targets. Sunday's church attack targeted a congregation that's affiliated with the Evangelical Missions Organization, SIM, responding to an announcement from the governor in the region. People in the West African nation shared their condolences, called on God, the government, and their fellow citizens to fight for justice on behalf of the victims and those survivors. Saying that one commentator write, uh, wrote, rather, God is good, but he is also a God of justice as much as he is good and patient uh, as he will render justice to the height of the crime. Let us be vigilant and redouble all efforts at all levels so as not to leave any fault to the enemy. Well, Christianity Today reported on a wave of similar church attacks in April and May of this year. It's not only the church that uh, has been attacked. All the values of tolerance, forgiveness and love have always led our country uh, um, and they have been hurt. Henry Yi, who's president of the Federation of Evangelical Churches and Missions in Burkina Faso, in an April 30th statement after the first attack said, he went on to say that the freedom of worship consecrated by our fundamental laws, the Constitution, have been flouted. In the face of blind hatred, let us ask God to give us the strength to spread love, which makes us the children of God. He uh, stated again back in April, the unity of the body of Christ and of the whole nation must be preserved at all costs. I'm currently studying the book of Acts and the epistles of Paul. And I'm reminded of the hard fought um, battle to survive persecution and to spread the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm reminded that as I enjoy the freedom and luxury of worshiping in freedom, that I have an obligation to remember those who suffer persecution, as the scriptures remind us of the early believers uh, whose perseverance has left for us a legacy of uh, great hope and confidence in God's word. Also, um, uh, Ohio State versus Michigan. That was the game. And the announcer told the story of a player who was almost aborted by his mother. And that has left the enemies of the pro-life movement, um, well, losing their minds. Well, rivalry weekend in college football is still underway with the uh, cross-state foes taking on each other across the country. Oregon, Oregon State, for example. Earlier in the day, one of the marquee matchups involved Ohio State playing Michigan. And while the game wasn't very competitive, something one of the TV announcers had said has left some up in arms. Gus Johnson apparently had the audacity to share the star running back, J.K. Dobbins, was almost aborted by his mother, but that she chose life. Well, obviously, this has allowed Dobbins to not only live, which is pretty important alone, but also grow into a successful young man he is today. Well, telling that story is unacceptable by some. For reasons that completely escape uh, most people, this was a, a really, really triggering event of some on the left who just couldn't handle hearing the reality of abortion laid bare on national television. An apology some are calling for for uh, talking about how he wasn't killed in the womb. That's a pretty weird thing to be uh, demanding. Think about how backwards that is. That woman thinks it's disgusting to talk about not aborting someone. Well, maybe it should be stigmatizing if it costs someone their life. Just um, 
something to think about. Uh, the story being told, people being reminded there there is a consequence and a victim to the procedure and celebrating a young man whose life was spared by a mother who decided at the last minute she was going to let him live should be celebrated, sadly, in our culture today, which is very telling. It was not taking a look at um, what's going on the rest of this week, among other things. On Tuesday, we're going to talk with Dudley Delfs, who is the author of The Faith of the Queen, Queen Elizabeth. The poise, grace, and quiet strength behind the crown. Now, you wonder whether or not someone like Queen Elizabeth, who rules her nation as a monarch, um, if she is serious about her Christian faith. We're going to explore that with Dudley Delfts tomorrow on the program. Again, the book, The Faith of Queen Elizabeth, The Poise, Grace, and Quiet Strength Behind the Crown. On Wednesday, we'll talk with um, Anthony Sigrist, author of Speaking of God, An Essential Guide to Christian Thought. It's sort of a systematic theology, if you will. He'll join us on Wednesday. I'm also looking forward to a conversation with an old friend who happens to be the music director of the uh, Oregon Symphony's Gospel Christmas. He's going to join me in studio to talk about the performances that are coming up. If you like and enjoy great gospel music, um, this is a concert that has become very popular in the Portland area. It's the Oregon Symphony, and we're not talking about a watered-down version of gospel music in which you make vague references to God and maybe the birth of Jesus, but this is a full-on, full in-your-face gospel concert uh, by the Northwest Choir that's uh, a compilation of musicians from all around the uh, the metro area and beyond. Some excellent soloists, and they're going to be performing with the uh, Oregon Symphony at the... Uh, uh, the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. This is a tradition that began several years ago, and it will continue. We'll talk more about that with Gary Hemingway um, of the uh, Gospel Christmas. And by the way, we will continue giving away uh, Gospel Christmas tickets the remainder of this week. So you have an opportunity to win a pair of tickets uh, every day this week, and you can listen up for your opportunity. I'll just tell you, uh, for tomorrow, those tickets will be given away in the first hour of the program. We try to alternate. Uh, today, we gave them away in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll alternate uh, each day of the week so that listeners who join us late and those who are here at the beginning all have an opportunity to win a pair of tickets to one of the greatest concerts of um, of the uh, calendar year. Let's see. Also on Thursday, we're going to talk with Mark Stewart, author of Losing My Voice, to find it, how a rock star discovered his greatest purpose. Now, you might recognize the name Mark Stewart. I'm going to build a little suspense. If you don't know the name, he's a very uh, popular uh, Christian artist. Uh, we'll explore his story when he joins me on Thursday to talk about uh, the odyssey of literally losing his voice. Now, you might think it's a figurative phrase. As a musician, losing your voice is one of the most frightening things that can happen. And for someone as successful uh, as he has been, um, the challenge for him to regain what was lost is what he writes about, but how he also discovered his greatest purpose in the process. Sometimes we come to the conclusion that performance is our greatest purpose, but because he had to struggle to regain the gift that God had given him, he learned that there was much more to him than just his ability to sing, and we'll talk with Mark Stewart about that. And then on Friday, it will be the first fun Friday of the holiday season. We're looking forward to taking a look at the lighter side of the news. I've already started collecting some stories that I think you will enjoy 
as part of our Fun Friday. So hope you can join us for that. So that's uh, essentially the lineup with a few additions here and there, what you can expect uh, this week, this first week of December here on the Georgine Rice Show. want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. And I sure appreciate the fact that you are making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I so enjoyed over the, uh, the last couple of weekends meeting so many listeners uh, here to the Georgine Rice Show at the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. And it is always a delight and an encouragement I can hardly describe uh, to meet you. And I, I so appreciate your encouraging words. So just want to say uh, uh, thanks and really enjoyed seeing some of you face to face. Anyway, that wraps it up for today. Hope you'll join us here again tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.